This week on Geek Explained, part three of our series dedicated to anime features a discussion on how the genre has impacted the world of film and been impacted by film in return. Get ready for anime part three. Welcome back to Geeksplained. I'm your host, Eric Kazana, and today's episode is part three of our latest month-long series called Anna May, because because anime and it's the month of May. Yeah, you get it. Uh, Last week, we covered the evolution of the genre, how it's changed from when it was first created up until today, and this week, we're going to be covering anime and film, how the two have influenced each other, and the times where it's either successfully or unsuccessfully mixed. We also have our latest weekly review on the newest episode of Harley Quinn Season 2, and of course, this week's comics callback. But before we get into all of that, let's check in with this week's news. All right, guys and dolls, so we got some news for you this week. We, of course, have our four categories, film, TV, comics, and miscellaneous, and uh, we've got news in all four categories. I know it's like a double rainbow, doesn't happen always, but it does. So uh, we're going to start off with uh, film news. And we're going to jump in with the one piece of film news that we have, which is that Disney has announced that it is doing an official live-action adaptation of Disney's Atlantis, The Lost Empire. Um, I have some feelings on this. Um, Adaptations, especially these Disney live-action adaptations, I haven't really been a fan of so far. Um, And as you'll see later on in this episode, you know, we we talk a little bit about, uh, about adaptations, but... Um, this one I, I am interested in just because I love the source material so much, but we will just have to see exactly what they do with it. Next up, we have miscellaneous news. I know we're hopscotching today, but we're going to jump into it. Uh, PlayStation's State of Play event kicked off this past week to, I guess, counterbalance the uh, Inside Xbox event that happened the week prior. And unlike Inside Xbox, PlayStation's State of Play showed gameplay specifically of a game that i am very excited about that being ghost of tsushima this is an this is a uh, a new feudal japan samurai game that i just am enamored with if you haven't watched the 18 minute uh gameplay reveal it's so freaking good i'm really excited about the open world aspect of it the customization looks really great the gameplay where you can choose to either be uh, a little bit more stealthy as a ninja or go straight in as a you know 
armored up samurai i think will provide a lot of uh gameplay freedom which i'm excited about and uh we'll just have to see moving on over to some a uh, little bit sadder news in the comics realm which is that uh joshua williamson who has been writing the flash since the 2016 rebirth uh era has announced that he will be leaving the title after, I believe it's issue 105, which is going to be wrapping up the finish line storyline, which is the next storyline after this current one, which is um, uh, The Flash Age. So I'm sad about this. I think Joshua Williamson has definitely made his mark on The Flash just as much as, you know, Jeff Johns, Mark Wade, and others. Um, but he is leaving of his own accord. He wasn't forced out. Um, and he has said in statements that he feels like he has told the story that he wanted to tell and that everything that has come up to this point, starting even back in the first issue of his Flash run, will all be coming around, forming their perfect circle and coming to a head with his final arc, which is, uh, as I stated, a uh, finish line. I am sad to see him go, but I'm excited for the future of the series, and with all the teases that he's been making um, on Twitter, he's been teasing Bart, he's been teasing Wally, he's been te teasing Jay, Jesse Quick. Um, it might just bring everybody back, so I'm really excited to see what he does with this final arc. And then finally, going into TV news, I'm excited about everything that I'm going to be talking about today, so I'm going to, I'm going to gush a little bit. Uh, first off, we got the official first poster for Superman and Lois, which will be debuting its pilot and, I'm assuming, first season, fingers crossed, uh, later on this year, if not early 2021. Uh, the poster looks fine. Shows our titular Superman and Lois together. Uh, I wish the logo was a little bit more exciting. It just... it seems a little boring to me but i'm still excited about the show as well as the announcement that it will be crossing over with batwoman this year so i'm excited about that as well i think once you've done crisis on infinite earths you need to spend a little time doing smaller crossovers so i'm glad that they're going in that direction and they're going to do smaller crossovers like having just these two shows crossover and it makes all the sense of the world superman and batwoman bringing out the world's finest, that kind of thing. So I'm looking forward to that. Another thing I'm looking forward to in the DC side of things is uh, Doom Patrol. It was officially announced. Oh, I'm so excited. Doom Patrol Season 2 will be debuting on June 25th. That's right. We are... Oh, we are less or just over a month away from June 25th. Um, oh, I'm so excited. I'm so excited. Uh, Doom Patrol is one of my favorite comic book shows of all time and definitely one of my favorite shows just in general the last couple of years so i'm really excited to see what they do with season two and it's been announced that the show will be uh simultaneously released on both dcu or the dc universe app as well as hbo max and i can't wait i cannot wait to watch this i'm really excited and then finally late breaking news that came on monday of this week umbrella academy season two this has been a great week for me, guys. It's just been a great week for me, and I'm so excited about it. Um, Umbrella Academy Season 2, which we've been waiting on since the end credits of the final episode of Season 1, uh, will officially be debuting on Netflix on July 31st. It's too far away, but, you know, we've waited basically a year, so I guess a couple more months won't 
hurt too much. Um, overall, really excited about all the TV stuff that's going to be coming out. I cannot wait to watch all three of these shows, especially Doom Patrol Season 2 and Umbrella Academy Season 2 and Superman and Lois. I'm just, I'm excited about all this. So, um, really excited. Looking forward to all these. And that's going to wrap up the news section for this week. We are now going to roll on into the main course, the Andre, if you will, for this week's episode, which is part three of our month-long series geek explained anime featuring the discussion on anime and film with special guest dustin reefer i think it's time to blow this scene get everybody in the stuff together okay three two one it's jam All right, ladies and gentlemen, it is part three of our month-long series that we're calling Anna May. That's because it's because it's anime and it's the month. Yeah, you get it. You get it. We're in week three now. But we have been going on this roller coaster of a ride through the genre of anime. Week one, we talked about kind of an introduction to what the genre is, some anime that you can go and watch. Last week, we talked about the evolution of the genre, how it's changed over time, and really how you can kind of signify classic anime to modern anime. This week, we're going to take a bit of a left turn, and we're going to look at how the genre has influenced the world of film, and how it's been influenced by film as well. And joining me on this discussion is another newcomer to the podcast making his podcasting geek explain debut welcome dustin reefer dustin how you doing doing great it's good to be here i'm excited (laughs) um so we are basically looking at how anime has been influenced by film how film has influenced anime dustin what was your first anime what was the first anime that you remember watching and kind of how how did it get you acclimated to the genre Oh man, I the think the first film I watched was Princess Mononoke. Nice. And it was on like the late night like tsunami or like Adult Swim, not, uh, like whatever was happening during that time. <laughs> and and I actually didn't even know what it was. It was like midnight and I was like struggling to stay awake because I wanted to watch it so bad. Whatever was happening was just awesome. So uh, years later, I find out what it was and then begin a deep dive into anime. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of uh, people got their first kind of uh, piece of anime with the Studio Ghibli films. Like a lot of people were introduced to the, to the genre by that. And we'll be talking about the Studio Ghibli films, not all of them, but some of them. Um, but like for me, like my first Ghibli film was Spirited Away. And I remember that being huge in like 2000, 2001. And um, Princess Mononoke was not that far behind because it is an absolutely engrossing story. So uh, we kind of divvied up the um, 
the official duties for this discussion. Dustin is one of the foremost minds in my friend circle uh, when it comes to anime and when it comes to film, so I thought he would be the perfect person to bring on for this discussion. Dustin, I know that there are a lot of films that have been influenced by anime. How about you talk about some of those? I'm really excited to see what you've come up with. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm excited. If, if anyone's kind of like researched this before, they'll, they'll kind of know, or if they've watched a lot of anime films, you can kind of guess. But uh, So what I think I'll do is I'll talk about the anime and what it's about, and then people can kind of see if they know what film this is like sounding like or what might have been influenced by that. Nice. Alrighty, so we're going to start off here with uh, Paprika. A 2006 anime film. That's the that's the film. Or the that's yeah, the spice, the film, right? Film. Not, 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 not the spice like you thought. <laughs> when I, when I giving you, giving you context, Dustin texted me um, either the night or the night before, and he was like, "Hey man, I'm watching Paprika," and I, or it was something like, "Have you heard of Paprika?" And I was like, "I didn't know what he was talking about," so I texted him back, "Dot dot dot the spice." <laughs> <laughs> so he was like, "No, the film." Um, so absolutely poor phrasing on my part. <laughs> but... Have you heard of Paprika? <laughs> so, Dustin, tell us about Paprika. All right. So, uh, Paprika, directed by uh, Satoshi Kon, uh, is follows. Uh, essentially, they have created a machine that allows therapists and. Uh, enter people's dreams now it's not like mainstream yet they're like just testing it but it works it's there and it gets stolen so as it's being stolen they're trying to find out what's going on who took it they're kind of entering dreams to find out what's going on and um crazy stuff starts to happen like people that are awake begin to enter dreams so now through this machine people are able to essentially make people that are awake think they're dreaming um one one person even uh just about jumps to their death because they uh they're going through a dream and they're following something um but they're actually moving in real life um so I, I don't know it's 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 pretty interesting like the colors are great it, it's like the it embraces the craziness of dreams the kind of random stuff that goes on um so i'm guessing people kind of know a film that this might sound like it does sound familiar uh, <laughs> inception of course the christopher nolan film uh heavily influenced by this there's actually a scene where a police officer is running through a wobbly hallway which is i mean it's it there's a whole like fight scene in that wobbly hallway that you know it's been expanded upon mm -hmm. but heavily influenced that you know inception there they have a machine they enter people's dreams I, I think it takes a little bit more of a um for lack of what better word a literal approach where or actiony approach rather than focusing on kind of the craziness of dreams but um but without a doubt Without a doubt, this had a, a big uh, influence on that. For sure. Alrighty. And then the next one, uh, we're going to go with probably an even more obvious one here once you hear about it, uh, is Kimba the White Lion. Yes. <laughs> yes. 
Uh, and I didn't know this. I'm, I'm, I was looking, researching it a bit again, and I think it's a, a shonen. A shonen. It was a shonen manga. No, is it really? I, I believe so. I believe it was a shonen manga. It had a TV series <sighs> and it had a film. Um, uh, the director was Aichi uh, Yamamoto. Uh, uh, the film, I believe, at least. Um, and mm. uh, it follows a young lion club, cub that is supposed to be the king of the jungle. You know, he's a prince right now. His father is lured into a trap and is killed. And through that, this young Kimba gets lost and has to find his way through the jungle and make it back. And through that, he deals with a villain named Claw. He's got a black mane, and I'm pretty sure... I, what I, from my information, he has a scar in place of his left eye, um, though it kind of just looked like his left eye is constantly closed. Uh, he has two hyena henchmen, and Kimba gets a uh, direction from his parents uh, that's like from clouds and stars, and he also has a nice baboon friend. Don't know. This is I, sounding awfully familiar. I don't know where I've heard this before. You, you know, I it, it took me a while because when I heard about Kimba, I was like, I feel like I've seen this before, but I just <laughs> I just don't know. Um, yeah. Disney's The Lion King. Just I'm pretty sure you know lawsuits involved in this one. Um Oh definitely. <laughs> Kimba, Simba, <laughs> Hyena Henchman of Villain whose name is Scar and has a scar on his left eye. Claw who who has a scar like I'm like I was like even looking at some of the scenes of like Kimbo running through like like or like going to like spiky vines and stuff. Like so much of the imagery is even so um, similar. It's kind of baffling. Um, That's wild. So that that that. <laughs> I couldn't believe it when I saw that one. I was like, oh my god, wait a second. This this is the Lion King. Yeah, there's like a difference between like like being influenced, like your first point with like Paprika and Inception, and then just like blatantly ripping off something and just switching up even just the letters in the name. Kimba <laughs> to Simba. That is it's so lazy. Like... It's, yeah. It, it's it's crazy. It's confusing, you know, and of course, you know, they say they didn't um know that this existed when they made it. You know, I, I believe that can happen, you know. I've definitely had ideas and then seen movies that were like super similar and just gone like damn it <laughs> so yeah, that that happens all the time but i mean for like as many similarities as there are like there's that that's suspect yeah sure. the, i mean the baboon the the two hyenas and the the villain with a scar on his left eye and you know a scar for a left eye too it's just like yeah that one <laughs> that one cracked me up a bit um next one uh yeah I think it's more about the world that they're in rather than the actual story that influenced the film. But the next one is uh, Ghost in the Shell, directed by Mamoru Oshii. Mm -hmm. And um, it follows uh, basically uh, – it's in the future. It's a cyberpunk kind of world, and cyborgs are common. Um, 
and brains their brains can human brains can connect to the internet directly mm-hmm. so we follow major the uh, makoto uh, katsunogi uh, and she is trying to uh, discover someone called the puppet master who is hacking into the brains of cyborg uh, to obtain information and commit crimes um, so it's a very heavy cyberpunk world action it's it's uh, not adult theme I, I i don't know why i'm doing that it's not like a porno but <laughs> no but, it, <laughs> but it, it's very it's, it's more very of a mature adult. anime yeah it's yeah. not for kids there's action there's Definitely blood <laughs> um so this one heavily influenced the matrix um you can kind of i can see that see it by the, the kind of the way the cyborgs were like the cabling in there and just the the cyberpunk environment that that they're in is is a lot of the imagery with that you can really be seen like in the background of of the matrix and the kind of the concept of human like human brains can enter the internet uh, ghost in the shell you know same thing you know they're entering the matrix through this kind of system yeah even like even some of the fashion choices too very like very similar very similar yeah and and i think this one is just something that's kind of influenced that genre a lot uh, in general um next one i absolutely love this film i ended up watching it solely for this because i tried to watch as many as i could so i sort of do what i was talking about hopefully (laughs) (laughs) um this is uh perfect blue it is actually directed by the same person as paprika satoshi khan and it follows uh essentially someone who's like trying she was an upcoming pop idol she had to leave her idol group because in that time idols just for whatever reason their premise they just weren't making it right now um so they want her to become an actress so she goes on this journey of swapping careers to become an actress and through this she's kind of having to start do things that she doesn't want to do she has to do a rape scene in a film she ends up uh, getting talked into taking new photos and she's kind of doing it all for these people that helped her out as a pop idol wants them to still continue to make it as well through this her reality kind of gets blurred uh and she starts seeing her idol self so there's almost kind of like this split of seeing herself as the idol and the her uh now she starts losing track of time she's she's really things are happening that are kind of like the the tv series that she's in you know there's murders that are occurring and people involved in it are starting to die interesting it, it really is going through this weird transformative journey and and kind of trying to figure out for herself you know what's real and what um isn't meant anymore as she fully immerses herself in this role um so this one influenced black swan directed by darren aronofsky um, wait the the natalie portman movie the natalie portman movie yeah wow and so black swan uh swallows swallows (laughs) follows 
swan. It's it swallowed. I'm just not going on giant birds. Giant black swan <laughs> swallowing Natalie Portman for two hours. Uh, <laughs> um, this this one follows uh, Nina, Natalie Portman's character, as she um, immerses herself into the role of both the black and white swan in that. Uh, funnily enough, I think the character in, in Perfect Blue's name was was uh, Mima. Mima. What? Mima. I didn't. I just Jesus. caught that. I just caught that. Oh, that's um, like Kimba and Simba, those bastards, yeah. sons of bitches. <laughs> uh, uh, and she starts kind of struggling with her sanity as she tries and splits herself between the duality of these roles, kind of losing what's real and what's in it as she kind of goes on this 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 journey and and it, what it really is is that it, there's definitely some big differences which i which is good and i like um but their 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 struggle is so similar in that what you have to do as a creative you know can really split you and having to kind of put yourselves and change yourselves in these dis- different positions and the toll that can take on people's minds and kind of exploring that and i think that's um just really um really cool yeah we've all been there <laughs> <laughs> yeah got, got a little crazy at times yeah. um but uh, uh this one also the a little freebie here this one also influenced a film called requiem for a dream um also directed by Darren Aronofsky. Um, so he obviously loves this film and, and I'm pretty sure has been stated as saying he loves this film, the loves perfect blue. Um, and I, I can't verify it for sure, but from what I was researching, uh, there was talk of him actually having bought rights to perfect blue or like the studio really? did it. So he could use a scene from it in Requiem for a Dream. There's a scene in Perfect Blue, where Mima uh, is in her bathtub, knees to her chest, with her head completely submerged in the water, and it starts above her, so you see her back, and, and then it goes into a side view, a profile, and we see her screaming into the water. And uh, if you look up Requiem for a Dream, you'll probably see yeah. those exact shots in that exact situation uh, happening which I think is is really cool that that they're not copying the idea but they were so inspired by this moment that they kind of wanted to give a nod to it. Yeah, I kind of want to go through Aronofsky's like filmography now and see if we can just like every every movie has a piece of that movie in it. Right, right. <laughs> Everything has had a bit yeah uh, it'd be interesting it'd be interesting uh it'd be interesting to see for sure yeah aronofsky is not someone i would peg as a uh, as an anime fan but i guess you learn something new every day yeah yeah there's a lot of um surprising ones um i'll, I'll use this to get the i wanted to get this in uh there's some surprising people that you wouldn't think that enjoy anime one of them being james cameron wait the james the cameron james cameron yeah anime fan he, you can see it uh in his movie avatar the the okay. scenery and the floating islands heavily influenced by nausicaa valley of the wind oh my god you're so right yeah i, oh, I was wow. so amazed by that along with of course christopher nolan you know 
you know, taking on paprika. And, and it's not just that, you know, they were inspired by these things. I'm not going to put words into their mouth, but from what I have looked up, it seems like both of them have been cited saying, yeah, I, anime is cool. Like, I enjoy this. And I think it's cool being able to look at a different medium like that and, and, and pull out some inspiration for things or, like, give, give nods to it. Oh, for sure. So I've got one more. This one is, again, is... is is a kind of definitely the influence rather than the direct story, you know, being similar. Um, this is mm. Elfin Lead. Okay, uh, I've heard of this. Yes, the director was Mamoru uh, Kanabe, and I'm so sorry, I'm doing my best with the names. I apologize. <laughs> um, and so this one follows uh, a girl named. Lucy, she had been essentially being experimented on by the government because she has uh, telekinetic power. She has these things called vectors, which are essentially um, tele telepathic in nature arms that are invisible to people that she can manipulate. And mm. so she escapes, leaving carnage in her wake, um, and gets out and meets two kids. But what they don't know is that Lucy is kind of a killing machine because she has a split personality. So they know her as new, this completely oblivious, strange creature that only knows how to say new, essentially. <laughs> um and and kind of and they befriend her and and she befriends them and and you know even though she can't really communicate with them they develop you know bonds of friendship and and kind of almost help the two that find her in in a way mm -hmm. um this leave not heavily influenced stranger things of course stranger things influenced by many things oh, 80s D, &D yeah. but this person you know being experimented in government with telepathic powers that's 11 yeah that's so wow um and and you know kind of being introduced in society finding people that take them her in without really quite knowing what she is then discovering it and still trying to help her um mm. not only that but also uh another film i i believe it's it's kind of like a sequel to limitless it's actually called lucy uh scarlett johansson oh, film. people like can unlock 100 percent of their brains and it kind of develops these powers that are seemingly almost telepathic in a sense and yeah it's just lucy yeah that's both, both lucy both telekinetic powers but and not to say that any of these films are the only things that in influence these other films that i was talking about and maybe some of these animes were influenced by films themselves um uh, they were in <laughs> fact i i believe i i wouldn't be surprised at all which is uh segway segway rock and uh, your wonderful segue uh <laughs> in fact there are trying, trying. honestly like a lot of um anime that have been influenced by film and first off before we get into my list i think um 
the stuff you talk about is great because if people are fans of those films, they now kind of have a roadmap on anime that they might enjoy based on those films, which I think is great. I, it is. I, you know, I, I love that. And that's why I wanted to talk about this a little bit, because I think people have a lot of stigma about anime. And I think sure. it's because people just don't no um and really the reason to enjoy it is there's so many things i think that they can do in anime that they can't or just don't do in film and mm-hmm. so for me it's not it's not a matter of anime you just have to watch it because it's anime um you know <laughs> i think we've all met someone who's like that in our lives it, it's that these the stories that they come up with are 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 can be so different of course there are some that are similar which i think is a great way to kind of introduce yourself to it if you like the inception watch paprika you know if you like the matrix ghost in the shell is great if you like this kind of deep dive into human psyche check out perfect blue you know these are great ways to kind of get into this genre that i think has has stories to offer that you you just can't really do or do as well in in film and television. Absolutely. And when you're talking about like how anime and film kind of have this almost like um, symbiotic nature, um, a lot of super popular anime was influenced by some really great films. Like two anime that are kind of like put on a pedestal when it comes to being a fan of anime are Jojo's Bizarre Adventure and Cowboy Bebop. Mm-hmm. You know, when people talk about like, what are like seminal animes that kind of sit at the top of the mountain? Uh, those two are most often like referenced to. And a lot of people might be surprised to know that uh, Cowboy Bebop and Jojo's were heavily influenced by uh, Clint Eastwood. His westerns, especially Dirty Harry, uh, had a lot of influence on Cowboy Bebop and JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, especially. Especially when you're talking about Part Three, Stardust Crusaders, where Jotaro Kujo, the main character, is so heavily like influenced by Dirty Harry that there's a shot in um, in that movie where. Uh, Clint Eastwood is holding his pistol kind of facing the screen and the creator of Jojo's Bizarre Adventure, Hirohiko Araki, um, he took that exact frame and made it Jotaro Kujo's signature pose. So it's like, and it's wild because like um, Araki and uh, and Clint Eastwood actually met. There is like a whole thing where they met. They had they you know talked about how much they liked each other's work, and uh, Araki actually presented um, Clint Eastwood with a fu- with a full painting of Jotaro Kujo doing his signature pose. And there's like a side by side that you can see with. Jotaro Kujo and Clint Eastwood doing like the po- it's wild. Oh, I love it. I love it. That's so cool. Yeah, I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah, right? But um there's also, you know, when we're talking about how uh Disney blatantly ripped off uh Kimba, there's also kind of a symbiotic relationship when it comes to that because Japanese animation actually has a lot to 
owe to Disney, especially um, kind of how it was created and really jumped into the world stage in the 30s and 40s. Um, Japanese animation up until that point was really just kind of like commercials or like little shorts kind of similar to like a Steamboat Willie, that kind of thing. But it was really the release of Snow White in 1937 by Disney where um, a very specific man in the field of Japanese animation was like, wait a second. Wait, we can make films? Like actual stories? Oh, that's great. And that man was Osamu Tezuka, who is kind of regarded as like the godfather of modern anime. And he has mentioned on multiple occasions how he's been influenced by Disney and by Walt Disney and his creations. Uh, some of his creations include Astro Boy, Blackjack, and Jungle Emperor. Now, you might not know Jungle Emperor by that title. You might... If you've, you know, been listening to this episode, you might know it by another name, Kimba the White Lion. That's right. Oh, it all comes in a circle. <laughs> so, um, so Tezuka was influenced in making these things by Disney. And then Disney looks at Tezuka's, uh, allegedly, looks at Tezuka's uh, Jungle Emperor and says, why don't we turn that K into an S and then it'll be completely different. <laughs> so uh, you kind of see how Western and Eastern animation kind of um, influenced, influenced each other, but also, you know, like we had with uh, Clint Eastwood and Jojo's um, live action films have also influenced anime very heavily. Uh, there's an entire subgenre of anime. That's basically just giant, uh, mech anime, you know, giant battle suits fighting each other. The most notable ones like Gundam, uh, Battle Spaceship Yamato. Those and really the entire genre owes a lot to Star Wars. Uh, Star Wars, when it was first released, had a huge cult following. Um, and when it made its way over to Japan, it exploded that whole genre. Um, Gundam is, and really, I think any space anime that was spawned out of that. Uh, love for exploring the stars has a lot owed to Star Wars. Um, there's also some that are kind of um, a little bit more fantastical, but I want to, since you were doing like the comparisons explaining something, I want to um, I want to make a comparison real quick. So tell me if you know if this sounds familiar to you. There is a lone protagonist who doesn't say a whole lot traveling through a post-apocalyptic nuclear wasteland, getting into all kinds of scrapes and fights, and he's known by a specific name. Now, does that sound familiar to you, Dustin? I feel like it is. It's Fist of the North Star, but it's also Mad Max. My God. The creator of Fist of the North Star. I know, I never, like, I didn't make this connection. But no, appara- I didn't either. Oh my yeah, god. Yeah, appara- apparently in interviews, the creator of Fist of the North Star um, talked about his influences being Bruce Lee, obviously, with the heavy mm-hmm. focus on um, on martial arts and uh, Kenshiro's like, famous like martial arts sounds, which are very similar to Bruce Lee's. <laughs> but also just in the overall um, aesthetic, and even in Kenshiro's costume, it's very similar to Mad Max's, you know, leather jacket, one of the sleeves cut off, he's got a shoulder pad, and it's like, seeing that, like, I can't unsee it. 
I'm never going to be able to unsee that. You're right. That's (laughs) (laughs) my mind just got blown. And the final one I have is actually one that you have on your list as well. It's Ghost in the Shell, which, as you said, influenced The Matrix and a lot of kind of the cyberpunk craze that uh, enveloped the genre for a good, you know, 10 to 20 years and even still kind of goes on today as well. Um, Ghost in the Shell, which was, uh, as you said, uh, created and directed by Mamoru Oshii, uh, actually was influenced and have had several influences, including um, 2001 A Space Odyssey, with the focus on AI that kind of went rogue, um, Blade Runner in its... Uh, noir detective style storytelling and oddly enough james cameron's the terminator oh my god yeah yeah with with some of the uh some of the enemies that major faces in that film and even i mean major herself being kind of a bionic um a bionic woman that is just like a relentless killing machine question mark um it's it's really interesting how those things you know influenced this anime and then that anime in itself influenced something as like hugely popular as the matrix and so like you see like kind of the um Kind of like I said, that symbiotic relationship between both anime and film. Uh, we're going to take a quick look just into a, like a brief history. I'm not going to list every single anime film of all time. But I do think that some of these films are important when we're talking about anime and film. Um, first off, really, you know, you mentioned it earlier, uh, Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, released in 1984. This was the first major uh, anime film that really you know, caught the Japanese audience, you know, their attention. Uh, it was directed by Hayao, Hayao Miyazaki. It was his first, you know, big screen debut. And this film really established Studio Ghibli. The success of this film, it was made on a $1 million budget and ended up grossing $15 million. Helped them to establish Studio Ghibli, which, as we talked about, is a huge IP when it comes to anime and really just film in general. Um, another one is Akira, which came out four years later, 1988, uh, directed by Katsuhiro Otomo. Um, this film is interesting because even though it's kind of regarded today as like, you know, this is like what anime is. Like, if you want to know, like, the birth of modern anime, that's what it is. Um, this film, like, bombed in the box office. Um, it was made on like a $9 million budget and only made $10 million in Japan, uh, which was not enough to recoup its, you know, its marketing and stuff like that. Uh, but afterwards, when it, you know, started getting released to home video and everything, it became this cult classic. And people still talk about Akira and its influence on so many things, especially when it comes to that cyberpunk genre. Uh, there's a game coming out, fingers crossed, this year. Uh, called Cyberpunk, which gives me very much like Ghost in the Shell and uh, Akira vibes. Uh, Speaking of which, Ghost in the Shell 1995 came out um, and was really, like you said, the first major cyberpunk anime. Um, And it ended up being very successful again, kind of after its theatrical run. But the first movie that I ever watched, the first um, anime movie that I watched was a little-known IP called 
Pokemon. Specifically, Pokemon, the first movie in 1999. Um, Did you see this film? Oh, man. I I, I have definitely at some point. I I don't know when I I was younger I had or not, though. Yeah, I, I remember seeing this in theaters. Like, going to the theater, because, like, my local theater was having a showing, and, like, everyone who went, they got these special, like, Pokeballs with these, like, they weren't, like, metal, but they were, like, some, like, chrome plastic, like, Pokemon cards with, like, Mewtwo, Pikachu, whatever. I remember, I'm pretty sure I got uh, Mewtwo. But I remember this was a huge night for me, because this was also the same night that Toonami was showing the conclusion of the Frieza saga for Dragon Ball Z. And so I basically, like, had to choose whether I wanted to see the conclusion of this, like, you know, 500-episode battle that they've been having, or go see the premiere of this cultural phenomenon that was sweeping the nation at the time uh late 90s early 2000s pokemon was you know even crazier than it is right now like right now it's got probably a farther reach when it comes to mainstream audiences but just the pokemania that was going on in the late 90s to early 2000s was incredible um my dad pulled a switcheroo on me because uh We went to go see the movie because I decided I wanted to see the movie, but he ended up recording that episode on uh, VCR because we did the old VCR trick. If you don't know what a VCR is, don't tell me because it's just going to make me feel older. But (laughs) I remember he pulled the switcheroo on me the next morning. I got to watch the end of that. So shout out to uh, to dad for that. But yeah, this was the first major anime movie where I was like, oh, my God, it's a movie. Like, this stuff that I'm watching on the small screen, I can also watch in a movie theater. I, I wonder, I wonder if they had those after. I remember having that, like, big, like, plastic Pokeball that had that little gold card inside of it. Yeah, it, like, hinged it. on the back. Yeah. And, like, there's no way you could ever put it on a belt or something because it was just too gigantic. <laughs> but, yeah, man, that's, that's, yeah, that, I remember that specifically but uh the way that anime and film kind of really broke into western audiences was with spirited away in 2001 uh it's another miyazaki joint and this one is notable for winning the academy award in 2002 for best animated feature and it was the first non-american film to win and that was huge and the just the worldwide gross for this i had i just think this is wild um the film was made on a 19 million dollar budget and ended up grossing almost 350 million dollars worldwide like that was really like it put studio ghibli on the worldwide stage and really put anime films in this place where it's like oh it's not just for japanese audiences and I remember watching Spirited Away and just being completely just blown away by it. It was something that I'd never seen before. The film itself, if you've never seen it, it is a trip. Like, if you, you know, if you ever had nightmares when watching Alice in Wonderland when you were a small child, watch this film, and this will give you, like, PTSD flashbacks to how Alice in Wonderland made you feel as a child. Like, there are some disturbing things that happened in this film, but it was also a fantastic Studio Ghibli film, and a, a fantastic film just in general. And 
even though uh, anime films kind of fell away in popularity after 2001, there would be little blips here and there. Um, the next film that I really remember going to see in theaters was uh, Dragon Ball Z Battle of Gods in 2013. Um, after a while, the kind of the genre of like anime films made for film kind of fell away and we started to see kind of this rise of uh, anime films being adaptations or uh, pieces of a popular anime like a Naruto, like a One Piece, uh, so on and so forth. But Dragon Ball Z Battle of Gods was notable for bringing the genre back because that anime um, originally ended in like 96. And so, like, even though we didn't really get, you know, a dub or anything in the States until later on in the 90s, um, we didn't get really any new Dragon Ball Z content when it came to, like, in continuity. And I'm using heavy quotation marks there um, because GT doesn't count. Uh, so, like, Battle of Gods was, like, the first big, like, return to form for it. Um, and it was huge. It was a huge deal. And I remember sitting in the theater going oh my god, like, this is real. This is a real thing that's happening. And then the next film that I saw in theaters was another Dragon Ball joint, that being Dragon Ball Super Broly in 2018. Um, Dustin might might be familiar with this because we went and saw this together at the uh, Burbank AMC theaters. Dustin, do you remember this movie? Did, 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 did we? I don't, I don't know. I don't know if I recall that that uh, amazing journey with a uh, 30 to 40 minute straight fight scene that was awesome. I don't know. Yeah, thir- I, and, sure. and 30 to 40 minutes is very conservative because <laughs> it's like it's almost the entire film is like one giant fight scene, which I love, which I love. There's absolutely a place for it. Oh, yeah. It's so much fun. It was one that uh, I hadn't re- I had been big on the Ghibli films, of course. I think that's kind of something that most Western audiences know. But my other anime films at that time were like ones that came from anime series and they would just like re-show what was happening in the anime series and add like 10 minutes of something new. So it was right. cool seeing Broly have actually a pretty good story for, you know, a, an action just anime meant for just a good time in fighting you know the story oh, yeah. of Broly was was great i was so shocked and then two to still have what you came there for this giant fight it, it was great it reinvigorated and made me want to start watching more um anime films rather than just watching the series that i had for sure and like there have been some pretty good um anime films recently that um that I think, you know, jump off main anime series. I think Naruto the Last is a great, like, epilogue for the series because it takes place, I think, like, 10 or 15 years after the series wraps up. And then, I mean, more recently, we've seen the rise of anime like uh, My Hero Academia. Um, It's had two films recently. I watched uh, Heroes Rise... No, I watched Two Heroes. Um, It's about two heroes. Uh... And it came out in 2018, and then it had most recent one, Heroes Rising, last year. I'm still waiting on the home release because you can't find it to stream anywhere right now. But um, are there any anime films that you would like to talk about that you think are notable? Because I'm sure I missed at least a couple. I I think just a couple uh, more recent ones, just just, uh, because they're kind of 
been bigger, I guess. I can't, the words are escaping me right now. So I'm just going to tell you what they are. Uh, it's um, Your Name and Weathering With You. Okay, both, I've heard of these. Both um, directed by the same person, uh, Makoto Shinkai. I feel like I'm butchering that. It's a safe so space here for bad pronunciation. Um, yeah, just just because he's, I I've heard talks of people like being like, like after your name being like, you know this guy's gonna be like the next Miyazaki sort of thing, and you know always, I oh, wow. I never like to put any, like thing into that. Like everyone's their own person, um, but uh, the I, I didn't get to see your name yet, which I'm killing myself for because I've heard it's amazing, but I did get to see Weathering with you in theaters. And I loved it. I really enjoyed being able to go to a theater and and kind of see this type of film. This I don't know. You just don't get to see stories like that in in uh, live action or like Western films. Um, Weathering with You follows a um, girl who can essentially control the weather, and so she kind of starts a a kid like. It starts a business with someone, a young man, and um, they stop the weather for people. Hey, it's going to be a birthday today. Can you make it not rain? Sure. But slowly this starts to take wow. something from her. Um, so it, I, I don't know. It's just a real cool story. Love, loss, like, you know, just because you have power, like, should you use it? Like, uh there's just some cool stuff in it yeah that sounds really cool i'm gonna, I'm gonna have to go back because i have heard of your name and weathering with you but i've never seen them so i'm gonna have to go back and watch watch this for sure because those sound especially with like this i know you said you don't like you know making those comparisons but if people are like oh this is the new miyazaki like that's a huge title to bestow on somebody those are big shoes to fill giant giant yeah yeah well and he um he went on basically like a temporary retirement in like 2013 and now he's officially coming back for um i don't remember the name of the film but it's supposed to come out this year or next year but it's really interesting just seeing kind of how the genre evolves and how you know anime isn't just for the small screen anymore anime can absolutely be on the silver screen competing you know in festivals and uh, award shows, uh, Spirited Away, you know, made that made that work, and I think it's something that it's, you know, I would love to see more anime get you know the proper respect that they that they you know rightfully deserve when it comes to stuff like that, but not all anime and film is great. Um, in fact, there are sometimes when mixing the two does a little bit more harm than good. I'm, of course, talking about anime film adaptations. Uh, this is something that is very controversial. There's a lot um, that goes into these. You've probably seen or heard of them before anytime you hear, like, oh, they're adapting X into live action. Like, it's... They have been attempting it and trying to make a good one for a very long time. And unfortunately, the ratio from bad to good adaptations is not great. Um, is there anyone you want to start with? Because yeah. we've got a couple. I, I'm so sorry. I'm gonna, I feel like I'm going to ruin your segue real quick because I'm just thinking about it right now. And 
Why is it that Ghibli films are kind of like the... I feel like they're the only anime films that Western audiences know or, like, relate with. Well, and I think I think when it came to Ghibli, it came out at a time that people... There was almost, like, a monopoly on the genre. It was, like, because mm-hmm. it was the only one that was making waves overseas at the time. Because, like, the accessibility, and we talked about it um, in last week's episode, but the accessibility to anime is, like, just completely different now than it was back when, uh, specifically, like, when Spirited Away came out. In 2001, I mean, 2001 was such a different time. Like, we we were just starting to get into the superhero movie craze, like, the first X-Men, the first Spider-Man uh, was coming out around this time, and, like, anime as well was still more of a niche genre so like stuff that you know stuff like a spirited away that really like blew people away was um i guess not as commonplace as it is now so i guess that might be where the prestige comes from yeah yeah i don't know it's just an interesting thing to me that i i didn't i didn't for whatever reason realize until right now but anyways, sorry for ruining your segue. Yes, there No, that's all right. It's 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 an interesting point to make because like nowadays again, like there's so many great anime and great anime films coming out that um you know, it's I think it's interesting to note that Studio Ghibli is still kind of the gold standard for that genre for sure. Yeah, and and definitely a good place to kind of get used to it to, yes. to kind of transition into anime. Especially uh, with some of those films. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, like they are the most anime. <laughs> so well, we have we have to start with this one. Uh, breaks my heart. But the live adaptation of Avatar, The Last Airbender. Do we have to start here? Do we I, have to? We, we have to. We have uh, to. And I know, I know, geez. Avatar, Last Airbender, not anime, western, what... It's I an still anime. think it kind of counts. Okay. Yeah. It's an anime. <laughs> what whatever. You know, it's fine. Just let it let it ha- it deserves that title. <laughs> um because this was just the epitome of a disaster. Just so true. Everything about it right away even from the casting with all the race stuff that was going on, whitewashing, whitewashing casts that were yeah you know ethnic in in the anime and then and then putting specific ethnicities as different nations which is like you know i i I kind of get you know different places have you know the their native you know culture and people so um just just right off the bat from that it was not off to a good start and then it was also being directed by the falling m night Shyamalan, <laughs> which is sad because like there are actually like a couple Shyamalan films that I really enjoy, and it just it's sad because I think I was one of the people who, when it was announced that he was going to be directing it, I was like, okay, this could be good, because you know this is the guy that did you know these great films that I mean we're a little further back in his resume than his current stuff at the time, but like this could work. He's got like a, a sense for it and he could really, especially with him being, you know, one of those, a POC uh, director, he could really give great, um, 
accessibility and great representation to these characters. And I think I was just as shocked as anyone else when some of these choices were made. And I couldn't believe the whitewashing that happened here, especially with Avatar, because it's so... It, it did such a great job at building out its world that you associate, like, the Fire Nation being very heavily Asian-influenced. You associate the Water Tribes being very much, like, indigenous people. And it's so... It was heartbreaking to, like, watch this. And, like, this extends even to, you know, dialogue and names. You know, calling him Ong and Soka and, like, just... It didn't make any sense to me. Yeah, same. And, you know, maybe they they were trying to make them more authentic by changing them or not. But to me, yeah, that just didn't make sense. When you're literally calling your film Avatar The Last Airbender, making it, this is a direct, like, transition of the the anime... Like why? Why are you changing the the names? Like why? Why do we? Why do we need this? It just seems it's you know he just he didn't have a twist. <laughs> I think that's what it was. He did. He didn't he have a, a twist, twist. So he that he could put into it. So he had to twist other things. Um, but I mean, even down to the um, oh the my bending, god, the bending. Really, yeah, sorry, my like, brain is just dead no, right you're now. Good, like, uh, the bending, like it's so slow, and and this bending is based off more different martial arts styles. So you can have people, you know, that can do these. They can be done. I mean, not as fast as the anime, I would say, but definitely didn't have to be done that slow where it takes five minutes for them to launch a boulder. It you was know? so boring. Like, they took something that's so inherently cool just by its definition of, like, hey, man, you want to shoot fire out of your fists? Do it. Like, and made it so unfun to watch. The fight choreography was atrocious, um, which is sad because they actually got actors who do know how to do fight choreography fight choreography the actor that they got for ang or i'm, I'm sorry ong um actually like <laughs> knows martial arts and all yeah. he did all of his own stunts and stuff but it just sucks because they didn't like they sapped all of the fun out of that show just to get like a popular ip onto theater screens and it was unfortunate yeah you know and and, and you really do see it i think that's a good good point is that with ang being not not an actor they hired him just because he could do the stunts and for whatever reason they they wanted that that i guess they don't believe in stunt doubles um <laughs> we don't know and don't get me wrong it's not like martial artists people who are some people can't act or can't do that no i believe that everyone has that potential but i think there also is a difference in uh because he was he was a kid he's a he's a child um, you know, you only have so much time to learn these things. I wouldn't expect <laughs> him, you know, to be a god at acting at martial arts, you know? Um, you just lose A. Like, when you don't have someone who knows acting, how, how can they portray this character that's so fun and free-spirited but then has to transition into these very serious moments and deal with essentially everything... Aang deals with is something that adults would have to deal with and and he's trying to grasp it because he's a child and just can't understand it that takes acting especially for me when you're making that transition from anime to live action i think anime has such a different way 
that they can express characters and particularly these characters these characters that can be a little extra goofy or silly in serious moments i think it's a little bit uh, of an easier way to do it with how you can over exaggerate in in anime that i just don't know that that's for me something i was tr- trying to struggle grasping is how can they or how could they transition that over exaggeration that you can do of emotions in anime to live action yeah absolutely agree and it's like you know when we're talking about character when we're talking about character growth character development a lot of that is owed to the benefit of being able to stretch out that story um when you're talking about a character going through these trials and tribulations and building up, you know, who, how these experiences affect them, how they, you know, deal with all of this narrative. They have, you know, at least, you know, 10 to 15 to sometimes 50 episodes to go across this. And a lot of times when they're trying to um, adapt it and translate it into film, they have to... S- you know, take this, you know, specifically for Avatar, they had to take the entire first season, which I don't know how many episodes it is, like 23, 24 episodes, and they, like, had to squish it into two hours. And that was not enough time. And so often we see them cut corners, um, taking out characters just to fit kind of the time constraint, which wasn't fortunate. And so we get to see, you know, all these people get rushed through their character arcs just for the sake of getting them onto the screen and getting um, some semblance of box office, which they didn't even get anyway. And that that's, you know, that's what hurts so much because they try to squish this entire book into one movie and it just doesn't work like that. Yeah, you, you just can't when you have... I, I mean, I, I guess they had the for people that had seen the anime that you know they had that that there were people that knew and understood the world already but you can't rely on that as a film because you're gonna have new audience members and that's kind of i think one of the great reasons to adapt something into a live action you know you're gonna get a new audience exactly like the the adaptations that are made especially like basically just in the ones that we're talking about aren't really made for hardcore fans of the source material because they have the source material. They love the source material. Um, You see a lot of times, especially nowadays, when people are like, oh, they're going to do a live-action adaptation of this. People are like, no, why? And it's because, you know, these adaptations are made to bring in new audiences. They're made to not just be you know fan service but to be a gateway for other people to come onto the train and to see like how blatant it was that this film specifically just did not care about establishing the stuff that made the fans fall in love with it made it all the harder to watch especially for people who i know people who would never even watched the last airbender you know the series and they went and watched the movie they're like what is happening here like we don't this isn't interesting why are you interested in this and i have to be i have to like shake them and be like no the show is so much better don't do this you're like this doesn't count we're forgetting this live action <laughs> it, it is it's interesting and and i i know that 
it's it's rough territory because there's a lot of people that are hardcore fans that just get mad in general when something gets adapted you know with everything i'm sure that there's people who love the harry potter books and the lord of the rings books that see the films and they're like oh you missed this you missed that you forgot that you know but you have to give them at least a little leeway and so i want people to understand that i feel like we gave them leeway on this one like there was leeway given we like, gave them a like, shot I, I don't want to put words off but it's like at least at least i i mean i understood like for me i'd be perfectly okay if they did a serious version of avatar that was like r-rated to me i think that'd be really cool it's a freaking war they're in a war like death is all around in this and the things that they are dealing with are so serious that it's always confuses me that all of that gets pushed down into like kid shows and then I have to be, like, watching back on them as an adult, watching this kid show being like, dude, these kids had to just, like, should have been just, like, straight up murdering people because, like, it's a war. <laughs> well, and, and that's why, like, a lot of times you see really successful, like, fan films because they take mm-hmm. the world, they take the IP, but they know how to translate that. Because, like you said, you know, over the course of the, like, Aang's, like, origin into the beginning of the series, a hundred years have passed. So if they wanted to do an adaptation, be like, you know what, let's do a live-action, you know, story set in that world during the hundred-year war. You know, we don't have to deal with anyone in the series besides making them kind of off to the side. And you can tell the kind of stories that you want to tell. That's what makes these, you know, the idea behind the A Star Wars Story series, like so exciting because you can tell all of these stories that we've never heard before in these vast worlds that absolutely open themselves up for interpretation absolutely absolutely yeah i think that's that's a really cool thing and and it it does it it definitely has to come from a love of the source material and an understanding of it which i think was something that was also missed in this from from to my knowledge the original creators of avatar were never brought on for the film and that they offered to be a part of it and help you know make this transition you know being the people that made it and know and love this source material and for me it just it shows so much that 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 people doing this did not know or understand like i would i would not be shocked if talking to some of the creative people involved in the live action, that they were like, oh yeah, I watched uh, a couple episodes, you know, that's it, or didn't watch <laughs> it at all. You know, just just the fact that they're, they're, even the changes that they're making that are just unnecessary. Why does the Fire Nation now need a source of fire to firebend when they didn't need to before it? That... To, to me, that's such a core thing to change in something that actually affects the story. What made the Fire Nation so powerful? They didn't need a source for the bending. They could create it on their own. And what they could do with that kind of made them OP or stronger than other nations. And then Terrifying, for sure. It's it's amazing. And then exploring that power that that like what that does to someone and how power corrupts is a really cool thing that then you just kind of lose they're just to me they're just evil now there's no reason for it they're just bad guys which i mean eh, okay like you need a villain whatever 
but but like there's so much more nuance than that in a lot of ways like it's you 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 took a character that i loved from the original series zuko and just made me and i love dev patel who played him in that film as an actor but they just did not give a rat's ass about zuko as a character and the thing about it that like bothered me so much when I first watched it was at the end they did like a post credit scene like teasing Azula and I'm like do you think you're getting a sequel out of this? <laughs> like do you just assume that people will love this so much that they just want a whole franchise out of it because I got some bad news for you. It's not going to happen. And a lot of times, you know, we see this where these adaptations, um, we've we've seen it all the time in the comic book movie genre where it's like they only want to tell a story so that they can get to a, a different story, a story further along, a wider universe. You know, Amazing Spider-Man 2 tried to fit the entire Sinister Six, their origins, into one film. And it's like, what are you doing? And like this, this, and I just want to make it clear, like Avatar is not the only, um, is not the only example of this. Another key example of this is a film that I despise to my core. It's called Dragon Ball Evolution. And (laughs) this film did every single thing that The Last Airbender did wrong and made it so much worse. Like, this was, I mean, first off, again, they repeated the whitewashing, making Justin Chatwin Goku, um, making most of the Asian characters uh, white, unless they were side characters, which then they could be Asian. Like, as, as like, an Asian-American actor, like, that sucked. And it really sucks, especially when you're taking an IP that's so um, core to an Asian-American you know viewing experience it's like it's frustrating and then they told a story that made no sense they tried to make goku like a a spider-man character like it was so bad and they took all of the lessons that you know studios learned from the disaster that was the last airbender and said no but we can do the exact same things and it'll be better because people like dragon ball z and i'm gonna tell you a little secret the ip wasn't the problem like people who just want to make money off of a popular ip because they want to americanize it doesn't like doesn't help i mean for god's sake look at ghost in the shell like the scarlett johansson led ghost in the shell created more buzz around people memeing that you know, Scarlett Johansson was just going to play every ethnicity she could more than people actually cared about the movie. And the original Ghost in the Shell movie is, I think, it's timeless. Like, the idea of it, the ideas behind it, the narrative, the story, the characters are fantastic. And the and beyond the fact that Ghost in the Shell, the live-action adaptation, is stunning when it comes to its visuals. Because it is. It absolutely is. It's gorgeous to look at. There's no love behind it. And that's like the problem with a lot of these adaptations is like they take something that they're like, oh, I've heard of that before. Let's make money off of it rather than let's make a tribute to how much we love this. And it happens so often now that it just kind of becomes commonplace. When you hear that an anime is getting a live action adaptation, you just kind of like shrug your shoulders. You're like, all right, it's going to be bad. 
but like go for it, I guess. And that, I mean, kind of brings us into the, the Netflix era of anime live action adaptations. And we've gotten a few. So let's talk about those. We have the, the one I'm familiar with is um, the live action Death Note that Netflix did which yeah uh for me i'm trying to get used to doing this as like putting everything aside and if i did not know death note if i had not watched the anime series and then i come and i watch this film it was okay it's not a terrible movie it's not yeah it's not horrible it's not great i wouldn't necessarily even go to say it's good it's just it's there you know, and you're okay it's with it. Fine. Like, I watched it. I didn't hate myself. You know, <laughs> like watching Avatar, where I just let's like, why? Why did I make my eyes bleed? Um, <laughs> so that, and, and I, I like this because what they tried. I respect a little bit of what they tried. I think this is something most people hate, but they tried to make it different. They, they told you at the beginning that these are different people. It's not Light Yagami. It's Light Turner. It's not Misa Amane. It's Mia. You know, so, so yes, this is based off Death Note. And I think that's something people need to realize too sometimes is this is based off this. They can't always just do it. I think they recognized, hey, we don't have time to match a 50-episode anime series but we want to do something with its concepts. Um, but in that case, don't call it Death Note, please. <laughs> like, because then it's also going to just make people do that. You know, call it something else and then say, hey, it's based off this, which I know a lot of people are going to hate. But but I think it, it can work. And I think maybe that's a solution to help certain things. It's like, let me just enjoy a different story involving the uh elements of this you know unfortunately they just went the wrong way with this they made it about the death note and what you can do with it rather than the anime which was really just a battle between light and l and that's what made it good is watching these two people that are considered like they're they're pretty much just geniuses of the world like l is the top three detectives in the world and no one even knows that they're that they're all him they all think that they're separate people um and and light is i mean he's a good kid he he's a genius in his own right he's just kind of gotten bored of the world because there's nothing to stimulate him he just understands everything you know and and for me that was kind of frustrating watching the difference between that in the live action where I, they made him kind of like not not necessarily a bad guy but they made him kind of have a chip on his shoulder like i'm actually a good dude i'm doing something bad though and the only reason uh you caught me doing this thing bad is because this happened and it's like well why are you doing why do you need to be doing something bad in the first place to show people that you're smart that that's i don't know for me that's mistake one you 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 you, when you do something to a character like that that affects their entire story and their entire thought process without 
almost not even thinking about it. Like, it's literally just to show you that he's smart. Like, that makes sense. Hey, we got to show this this guy's smart. We don't have time. Boom, we can just do this. But that's one of the great things about the anime is that Light doesn't have a chip on his shoulder. He's not doing this to try and get revenge. Like, he doesn't test it on the guy that uh, killed his mother. That didn't happen. He, he, he actually genuinely was like, holy shit. I can make the world a better place. I can kill all the criminals, which is like such a cool concept because that's going to draw a line. There's going to be people, there's people that are murder is murder and it's bad. We can't do that. And then there's people that are like, wait a second, but you're killing the murderers. Like you're, that's helping things, right? Is it though? Like, you know, that it's such a cool question that, that, that poses that then just gets that when then you add it to your story, the live action, they still go, okay, yeah, we're still going to have light be like, you know what? I can make the world a better place. I can kill all these criminals, but you're starting it off on a basis of revenge, which then just makes it seem like he's a vindictive kid, right. which just completely ruins a character and a story to me when you're having someone have to have these high ideals, but then showing that they don't, it's like, wait a second. Well, what's, what's going on here? Well, and the story of the original death note really kind of starts out as almost this, um, adaptation of the argument for and against the death penalty. Like there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of similarities in just kind of the treatment of that. You know, does he have the right to use the death note? And there's a whole story early on where he's just like, you know, I don't, am I allowed to do this? Like, am I the right person to make these decisions about people's lives? And then the story really becomes a story about escalation. Because once he starts to do one and two and three and it starts to uh, almost corrupt him in that way, then it becomes almost this, you know, fight for survival because now it becomes between him and L and he, he's not trying to be a criminal, but he doesn't want to get caught. And so that the whole escalation on that really is based around how one person's good intentions can spiral out of control. And that's, it's completely lost in the adaptation, which sucks because I really like the cast Nat Wolf is a good actor. You know, they got they got fucking Willem Dafoe to play <laughs> Ryuk. Like, and the, I, can't, I can't think of her name, but the girl from The Leftovers is playing yes. uh, Misa. She's Mia. Like, she's great. You know, it's a the, great cast. Elle is fantastic. So, so freaking good. But they just, they, again, like, if this had been something else, if this had been a different IP... I would have said, you know what, that's a fine movie. It has, it's got, you know, good ideas, didn't execute all of them well, but I don't think it's something that I have to, you know, throw across the room after I watch it. But, like, looking at it through the lens of, oh, this is supposed to be Death Note, then it's like, oh, I don't know about that. And I don't want to make it sound like it's just, like, American adaptations, because in the era of Netflix anime adaptations, we have gotten adaptations of anime that have been made by Japanese studios. Uh, Full Metal Alchemist, Bleach, among others, like, they got 
their live-action adaptations by Japanese studios, and they are just as equally bad! Because they just, they don't really take the time to make the characters interesting or really give them any semblance of who they were in the show in the original stories like the ed from the live action full metal alchemist is a pop star literally he is a pop star who they brought on because they thought casting him would get people to watch the show and it's like no disrespect to him no disrespect to you know i'm sure he spent time you know trying to act and do his best on here but he just he doesn't get it there's a certain disconnect there, and it's so frustrating because you know that, like, put in the right hands of people who love the material, like, they could do something with it. It's not impossible. You know, there's a there's an adaptation that I haven't watched in years, but I remember distinctly of a live-action uh, Roroni Kenshin or Samurai X, and it was great. It what from what I remember, like I really, really dug it because they took the source material, they gave you enough of the stuff that you enjoyed in the original stories, but they also told a story in only the way that a live action film can, and it just made use of all of the tools at its disposal and ended up being very, very good. So it's like I said, it's unfortunate that. When it comes to a lot of modern anime adaptations, the love just isn't there. And I think that's kind of what, for me, it all really distills down to. You could talk about budget, you could talk about um, studio interference, whatever. But it's like when you have a love for something and you really love what you're working on, it shows. And what I've seen is kind of the through line in all of those adaptations is just the love just isn't there. Yeah, I, I agree. I think people look and say, hey, this is a cool plot. This anime had an int or interesting concept because most of them just throw out the plot of the anime anyway of like Death Note did, which is like, okay, like that's okay. You can change the story, but then just, you know, let me know even more so that this isn't this story. If I'm looking for this story, it's going to be, you know, it's going to change everything. So I think that you're right it's about the love you need to start looking into what made this great and a lot of it comes down to the characters and then you know take time maybe then to make the characters more similar or put the same love into their story or, or how they they grow and move because you can have that in i think a 90 minute two hour film you can have great in-depth characters with backstory and that go on a transition a journey i mean that's what everything is i mean films are always like hero's journey hero's journey hero's journey which i, I kind of i agree and disagree with that because you can obviously <laughs> find that in everything but um i i don't know i just i just think that it's kind of baffling when then that just gets put aside and, and the focus becomes on the concept of the anime rather than what happens in it or what makes it great. And and for me, I, I can't think of the solution because for me, there's so many characters in anime that I don't know how you make in, in live action. And I, 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 I found this like yesterday, like going back through, I had watched an, an anime, uh, Kaguya-sama Love is War, or something like that, and there's a character that's Shisaki, and they're so kind of, I, 
I, it's so hard to even explain the character. They're just so carefree and God, I can't even, and, and, like airheaded but also really smart in other things they just kind of hit all these weird different things and they're almost like an enigma of a character but they're so fun to watch and enjoy because you're like i don't even know what they're gonna do what fun are we gonna have with this person and for me i'm like as an actor it's for me it's like how the heck do you do that how the <laughs> heck do you act this for me it's something that maybe only anime can show because of one i think suspension of disbelief has is is less in in anime you don't have to spend your disbelief as much because it already is suspended from the get-go you know it's it it's not even though the characters represent and have the depth of real people and even more so they're animated you you lose that initial um connection of blood and flesh you know seeing right you know when you see that in live action you have that initial connection so you have to suspend your your disbelief more to make these things happen and then also with the way that they can um accentuate feelings um you know for me a lot of cool things in film come from the subtlety of feelings and like watching actors like like uh i think tom hardy is a good example and christopher nolan's literally like I'm going to see how much of this dude's face I can cover and see how freaking good he can still be. Like, it's like, so true. And, and it is just the slight movement in the eyes and stuff, but where it is in anime, I don't think uh, for me, there's no subtlety. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, I think in some of maybe the films, like something like uh, Akira or like Paprika, like you still get those highs, but you also get the subtlety, but it's, it's kind of weird that then like uh actually i think perfect blue is the greatest example it doesn't really have the heightened animation emotions that we see in modern day anime i think that's a great one you could easily adapt that straightforward through and through to a live action and get all the subtleties in that so i think the and next piece step... by piece darren aronofsky is doing it already exactly exactly <laughs> so shout out darren aronofsky let's uh let's make a live action perfect blue and then get the ball rolling on some stuff we, we we know he uh i know he listens to this podcast so, so. darren darren you know what to do uh, give dustin a call so for me, I think that's a good start is figuring out how to transition these characters, especially like Aang is he's such so, such a goofball and the expressions that they give him. For me, it's it's really hard for me to see the transition into live action of embracing that and, and making it not the same, but still getting that spirit out there in the same way. Do you know like do you how do well, you do that? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. That's a that that is a complicated question. I think that the answer is gonna be just as, if not more complicated. Um, I don't think it's impossible to get the kind of um I don't know, like uh spirit of those characters in live action. I don't think it's impossible, but it is definitely difficult to kind of match it, which I think is where people go wrong sometimes with certain adaptations. Like when you're trying to match the level of just raw energy that an anime can have at times. Like, of course, with physical limitations, 
we are going to fall short just as people. But if you, you know, take the spirit of what they're trying to convey and try to filter it through how a normal person would do that, I think there is a level of realism as well as suspension of disbelief that you can make. There can be a happy medium. And I mean, speaking of Aang, like specifically, we're going to see exactly what they can do because they've announced that Netflix will be doing a live action uh, Avatar The Last Airbender, but they're going to be doing it as a series, A, and B, it has the original creators on board executive producing it so i mean that's already two things that the uh film didn't have in its favor so i'm i've got fingers crossed um you know depending on when you're listening to this if if you are listening to this far away in the future uh maybe this will age very poorly but i have a lot of faith in this new adaptation and they get me every time every time i hear there's going to be an adaptation i'm like ah oh, fine but maybe <laughs> yeah you, but there's maybe. always that hope there's always that hope and <laughs> i think this avatar one will be the true test with the original creators behind it you know you know that there's gonna be the love there they're gonna want to put that forward so that's gonna be exciting I, I have one more question. I, for me, what do you think? Do, should people be trying to make these adaptations their own? Or do you think they should be trying to stay true and true to the source material? I think that there's there's kind of two ways that you can look at it. Um, because if you are just trying to get people to watch the source material, just have them watch the source material. <laughs> if you know that's that that's kind of how i feel yeah, about it and yeah. it's you know that might be i i don't know if that would be considered like gatekeeping or whatever but it's like you don't need to make an adaptation of something that's you know already really really good because you could just send people to go watch that thing and it's like i personally am not interested in watching you know, just a remastered version of exactly what I saw before because I can just go back and watch it. Like, if I want to watch, you know, a movie that I've seen a hundred times and someone's like, oh, we're coming out with a remastered remix version of it, I'm like, well, I, I, I just want to go watch this. But, as I said, you know, earlier, like, if you want to take what the original work established and build upon it, like tell a different story with new characters in that world, I am on board because I want to be more engrossed in that world. I want to see more of Avatar The Last Airbender's world. I want to see more of the universe in Star Wars. I want to see more of these worlds that people take so much time to build up. All of these different, you know, classes, all of these different um, political, social, religious infrastructures, I want to know more about them. I want to spend more time in it. You know, that's what's so, for me, interesting about uh, good world building is that when you are, when you have a really great world that has been really well established and really well translated into your story, once the story's over, you should want to see more stories in that world. You should want to be like, okay, this was really cool, um, I want to stay in this world, but like, hey, what's that guy over there doing? Like, I want to know like that this is a story that even if it changes a couple things here and there, even if it, 
you know, contradicts certain things. If you tell me a good story that has love in it and really uh, translates what was so great about that world, I will be on board for sure. How do you feel about it? I, I am. I, I almost can't make up my mind on it um, because for me, I, I, I do I, – I would want to see how live action interprets the animes and how to act the characters, which I just don't think has been given a fair shot of because they usually – transition so far away from them right so but for me also like 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 i said like an r-rated avatar would be cool so making it your own in that way and and being like hey we're deviating avatar was this fun you know kid show that's goofy but now it's um audience is adults the people that watched it when they were growing up and loved it are now adults and seeing that and, and i see it in um uh, there's a movie Aragon that was a, a popular book. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And this guy is literally shooting, ro- shoots a rock through the head of like a six foot eight creature, but then the film is PG, and it's like, well, now I don't get that. You know, it's almost that sort of thing where it's like, I, I don't know, like maybe even something needs to change with that, where like like for me live action is not that it it's a little more it's a lot more serious not that anime can't be super serious or just as serious, absolutely but, it can. But, the, but um for me live action is always just a, gonna be more serious than anime and the characters i think are gonna have to be more serious maybe well, and I feel like it's it's not impossible. I mean, we've seen the rise of comic book movies, and comic books, at their core, can be very animated, and they can be very ridiculous. And so it's not impossible, and I think if you take, you know, the kind of, the, the good lessons about stuff like the MCU and stuff like that, like, you can translate something and still make it your own. But I just feel like, I don't know, people try so hard to directly adapt um, anime when they try to translate it rather than um, tell new stories with these characters, with this world, that it just, again, it just makes me feel like, well, if you're just going to make the exact same thing, you know, just with a fresh coat of paint, I'm going to go back and watch the original. That's what bothered me so much about stuff about a lot of these Disney remakes. Like I, I can't watch. we talked about it enough on today's episode, but like the lion King, like I, I will not watch that movie because it's not, it's the exact same movie that we saw before, just not as pretty. And it's like, I don't want to watch, like I get it. You want to make it photorealistic. You want to make a lot of money with it, but it's like, I don't watch Disney movies for the photorealism. I watch them for the characters and the escapism. And so, I don't know. I think that there's, like I said, there's a happy medium that they can meet, but it's difficult to meet that when you're so focused on just trying to make money from telling a story that's already been told before. I, I Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's something cool that with the success of the superhero movies and the Marvel Universe... Um, like maybe is that something to look into? Because for me, I, I, unfortunately, I know nothing about comics, so I don't have anything to compare to. And I'm going to switch from Marvel to DC now, because for me, I, I look at the Batman series, Christopher Nolan's Batman series, and even the difference from like things like 
like the old Batman movies, you know, with like Jack Nicholson and, and stuff, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Jim Carrey, um, like the difference between those is so huge where it seems like the older ones are a little bit more playing off the comicness of it. Whereas maybe Christopher Nolan's like fully adapted into live action, like with the seriousness. Would I? What's I would really love to get your opinion on that because I think there's something there that's a key to this, where they they did something that was great and they transitioned this medium into something right. Well, I think for me, what really worked about that is that regardless of Nolan taking like the dark and gritty and very grounded, because his his main goal was to make it grounded approach to Batman, what made those films so successful at their core was that they retained what the core of Batman was. Um, They put it through a very gritty and realistic filter, but what they did was they retained a lot of the stuff that made Batman Batman. And if they did that when translating like an anime like a Full Metal Alchemist or like an Avatar, and they retain the core, the heart of that character, um, I think people would be able to forgive a lot of the, uh, I guess, more artistic liberties that could be taken with it. Because, I mean, the Nolan movies took a lot of artistic liberties with a lot of the Batman mythos. But what made it so um, what made it so successful in spite of that was because was they took all of those liberties while still retaining the heart of that character. And so I think, you know, if we took that as an example and put that towards, an avatar full metal alchemist a death note a bleach or whatever then i think people would be seeing a lot more successful adaptations yeah i i really like that i i I didn't think about that as much i think that's a great concept because we were what we were seeing in these is that they changed ang so much that he wasn't ang his what he was doing is different and and even more highlighted so in the death note one and I get, you know, changing the name. They're trying to change the character, but that's also what made them fail in the end is Light's ideals were gone. And that's what made this character interesting and made the concept of who, because who, who, who is the protagonist? Is it L or is it Light? You know, you can make an argument both ways. You can make an argument that they both are, you know, and that's something that is is fantastic and you're right it all comes down to the character and, and we we just lose that when you make it start off like they did in that one as revenge or you know whatever the hell last airbender did with all of its characters because <laughs> <laughs> well honestly we could probably talk about anime and film for days but uh we're gonna go ahead and wrap it up here um regardless of you know, whether we're talking about adaptations, influences, I think that the relationship between anime and film is strong and has, you know, lasted for decades. Are, do you have any final thoughts on the relationship between anime and film? I, I just think it's it's a great thing and kind of just shows that people kind of just need to remove their stigma on certain things just because something is this doesn't mean it that it doesn't have something it, it can give you or you can take from it if you're a creative if you, especially if you're a musician watch anime because it does something with the musics weathering with you 
literally talked to artists, had them write music, and then had them write more music and, and change the story to fit it in because they loved what it did with it. And I think film does that too, but it, you know, there's just certain things that both don't do and do differently that there's so much to learn and take from it, different stories, you know, a lot of it, even learning something about yourself by watching a character go through a story even, or just pure entertainment value of watching a giant fight. You know, people go see things like the <laughs> Meg just because they want to see Jason Statham, you know, punch a Megalodon, you know, like they have that in, in, in anime too, you know, and I think people just kind of write it off just because of the genres and then also write the people that enjoy it off because they enjoy it. And for me, that's the biggest thing. Everyone's going to love what they love. It's going to be different things. And I think that this episode really just shows how close they actually are and the love and give and take that they give each other that I think we can then transition just as like people even like there doesn't need to be the stigma of oh anime nerd you know or like even within anime being like an anime elitist oh you like this anime like come on like let's just just everyone just do you okay and let's be happy <laughs> well said well thank you very much dustin for coming on the show it's been fantastic and i don't want to let you go just yet i would love to have you come back next week to join a roundtable discussion on talking about our top five anime of all time would you be interested oh you know i gotta i gotta check my schedule look i don't know if i have enough yes <laughs> All right, so you heard it here next week. Uh, join us for a full-on roundtable discussion featuring the guests from all three episodes of Geek of Geeksplain Anime so far. Dustin, want to say thank you very much for coming on the show. It's always a blast talking to you and always a blast talking about anime with you. Thank you for having me. I was so excited to have this chance to have an anime talk with someone. <laughs> so we will continue the conversation next week get ready for it it's going to be the top five anime of all time It is now time for the weekly review. This is the segment of our show where I review something weekly. And right now we are reviewing Harley Quinn Season 2, specifically Episode 7, titled There's No Place to Go But Down. Uh, last week's episode kind of left us on a big cliffhanger of Harley and Ivy being picked up by Two-Face and his gang, which are essentially running the GCPD, and Man, this episode was so good. Uh, we're going to talk about that big ending at the uh, a little bit later. But overall, this was a solid episode. I mean, this was a great, I think, um, 
This and last week's episode were a great kind of one-two punch, where last week really established the uh, relationship between Harley and Ivy, whereas this episode kind of moved that relationship forward, an emphasis on relationship. But uh, the episode starts with Harley and Ivy on trial. Um, I love this scene. I thought it was going to be the whole episode, and I was kind of disappointed that it wasn't, but what we did get of it was great. Uh, Two-Face was their prosecutor, Bane was the judge just amazing um but even more amazing was the defense attorney assigned to harley and ivy and it was kirk langstrom man bat and it was so good like he um came in with his glasses in a briefcase but he spoke like a bat in that anytime that he wanted to talk he would just shriek and no one understood him (laughs) um and it was just it was so funny and i really really loved it but um Of course, the deck is really stacked against Harley and Ivy, so they are sentenced to life in the pit. That's right. Penyadoro North Correctional Facility, which I just, I love. Uh, A.K.A. the pit, where Bane is the warden, and he's essentially turned the pit where he uh, was born and raised into this, like, like inpatient uh, rehab facility. It was really odd but uh but in a good way uh we got appearances by killer croc victor zaz which were really good we even had like a uh, a weird uh talent show where george lopez showed up it was weird but the best part of it was uh ivy just kind of like sharing her soul her magnum opus on the um on the stage of the talent show, basically talking about her feelings, how she's grown and everything, and how Harley's been such a big part of it. So they they did a great job, like, foreshadowing the ending of this. Um, meanwhile, uh, the B-plot was big focus on Gordon and Batgirl. The two of them were initially working to uh, defeat the Ratcatcher, but of course because Gordon is a bubbling alcoholic in this show... Um, he got away and they were uh, basically defeated. But when they went back uh, to the house, Babs uh, revealed herself to her father, who immediately just started pouring out all the alcohol in the house. And um, it was really heartwarming. It was really nice for them to really team up and that be kind of the inciting incident to get Gordon back on the straight and narrow. Um and that directly led into the uh, kind of the B climax of the episode, which was Gordon's raid on the GCPD. Um, and it's just so cool, like seeing like overweight, like out of shape, past his prime Gordon, just going all John Wick inside of the GCPD. I had such a great time watching that. It was really funny. And then, you know, Backroll, you know, is leaned against the door outside it's like are you still okay and he's like yeah while he's like getting shot and everything it was it was really really good and then he ultimately ends up defeating two-face which i was really surprised um especially because we're only really halfway through the series or the season but um i'm interested to see where they go from here because essentially they defeated the last two members of the injustice of the injustice league um We'll see. But the big story is not the redemption 
the redemption of Jim Gordon, the big story is the ending of this episode where um, Harley and Ivy were able to uh, escape the pit. Um, at one point, it looked like Harley was sacrificing herself to allow Ivy to get out so that she could go and marry Kite Man and live her life. But um, Harley was able to defeat Bane and send him into the fiery depths. Uh, I don't know if that means Bane's dead or what, but during uh, Harley's fall back from uh, out from like midway down to like into the pit um ivy came in and rescued her on the vine and as soon as i just hit the mic there uh, as soon as they got back out they were having kind of this breathless moment where they were kind of um i guess just taking in the fact that ivy saved harley and then they started kissing and it's like whoa all right so um the creators of the show did not lie to us um the uh the harley ivy romance is on i don't know where they go from here especially because ivy is engaged to kite man but we will just have to see so uh overall love 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 this episode especially when you kind of put this one in the last episode together as kind of a two-parter um this season's been firing on all cylinders and i've been really really enjoying it and i cannot wait for next week's episode i cannot wait i'm so excited to watch it but that's going to do it for the weekly review we're now going to roll right on to this week's comics callback <laughs> Welcome back to this week's Comics Callback. This is the segment of our show where I talk about five comics that I think you should go back and read. Whether it's on Comixology, the DC Universe app, or whether you just go back to your shelf and dust off your old copy of the book. Last week, we covered five comics that dealt with historical fiction. And this week, category is Green Lantern. Green Lantern is officially celebrating its 80th anniversary. Alan Scott never looked so good. And I thought that apropos of an 80th anniversary, we should check out five comics featuring Green Lantern. Uh, Green Lantern's been around for a long time, as you can tell. And so there have been comics throughout throughout all the decades in between since it's... Um, creation all the way up to now uh featuring green lanterns from all over the galaxy so these are five comics that i think you should go back and check out and they're also five of my favorite comics in dc in general so let's go ahead and dive right into our first comic which is emerald twilight uh you've probably heard of this story before even if you're not a diehard green lantern fan uh but let's dive into the synopsis and then we'll talk about the book Driven to desperation by the destruction of Coast City, Hal Jordan walks down a dark path that leads him to a war against the Green Lantern Corps and his own downfall. So Emerald Twilight, written by Ron Mars with art by Daryl Banks, is one of those seminal Green Lantern stories that you always hear about, especially when it's referring to Hal Jordan. This was Hal Jordan's, you know, climactic fall from grace. Um, this uh, originally was in the uh, early 1990s, 1994, I believe, was the year this came out. I could be wrong. Um, but this came pretty 
shortly after the death of Superman, um, the uh, right around Nightfall as well. This was kind of the weird 90s period where DC was like, hey, you know our superheroes? Let's mess them up a lot. So uh, Superman was killed. Batman had his back broken and Green Lantern had the entire city, his entire hometown of Coast City destroyed, flattened by Mongol and the cyborg Superman. And so this really tells the tale of Green Lantern's fall from grace and how, you know, the fall of Hal Jordan meant the birth of Parallax. Uh, this was a huge shakeup, a huge status quo shakeup for Green Lantern. Uh, the title and the character as Hal Jordan, who had been a hero since the 60s, became one of the biggest villains in the DC universe. And this also opened the door for my favorite Green Lantern, Kyle Rayner, to take the stage as the one and only torchbearer. But just this story in general, where Hal um, basically tries in vain to get his city back and get the people that he loves back and how that kind of flies in the face of the guardians and how they kind of reprimand him and his descent into madness is really a uh, it's an incredible story that is both heartbreaking and profound and it pairs really well i think with our second book which is green lantern the sinestro core war uh this was written by Jeff Johns with art by Dave Gibbons way back in the far reaches of 2011. And this almost is like the bookend of Hal Jordan when you kind of put this up next to Emerald Twilight, where Emerald Twilight is like the start of the story, the fall of Green Lantern, the fall of Hal Jordan. Uh, he goes through Zero Hour, he goes through New Dawn, he goes through a death, he goes through uh, Green Lantern Rebirth, and then this, the Sinestro Corps War, really is Hal Jordan's finest hour. So let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Sinestro. Hal Jordan's former mentor and arch-nemesis has gathered an army of soldiers fueled by the fear they instill in others, consistent of Arkillo, Carusil, the cyborg Superman, and hundreds more of the most terrifying villains the universe has ever seen. Former Green Lantern Kyle Rayner has been possessed by the entity known as Parallax, and now assists the Sinestro Corps in cutting a swath of evil across the universe. Trapped in the depths of the Sinestro Corps Citadel and face to face with the guardian of Sinestro's army of fear, Hal Jordan must find the willpower to battle these terrible foes. And as one of the Book of Oa's prophecies come true, the Green Lantern Corps makes a last stand that reveals the reincarnation of one of their fold. So the Sinestro Corps War is really, like I said before, uh, Hal Jordan's finest hour. This was the height of the uh, conflict that had been building between him and Sinestro since way back in the 60s. And this really, even though um, there have been criticisms and fair criticisms of the story being a little bit overstuffed and a little bit, I don't know... Um, I guess overstuffed is like the perfect word just because it they cr they try to cram a lot, like a lot. Like we have um, appearances by Cyborg Superman, Superboy Prime, the Anti-Monitor. They basically try to take all of that and squish it into one giant event. But 
honestly, I still really enjoy it. For all its faults, uh, Sinestro Core War is still an incredible epic story that I always find myself going back to. And the fact that Kyle Rayner is a prominent figurehead in it doesn't hurt either. But really, like I said, if you pair this with our first pick, the uh, Emerald Twilight, it really is a great little uh, juxtaposition of the two stories with the fall of Hal Jordan and him kind of rising back and rising to the challenge. Now, our third book isn't a Hal Jordan book. Uh, we're going to take a sharp left turn and head into the era of DC Rebirth with Volume 1 of Green Lantern's Rebirth entitled Rage Planet. Uh, this was, as the title suggests, the first volume of the Green Lantern's uh, title in the Rebirth era and features two new Green Lanterns. Uh, let's go ahead and just dive into the synopsis and then we'll talk about the book. Two new members of the galaxy's greatest peacekeeping force are here. As a part of the critically acclaimed, best-selling, all-new line of Volume 1 graphic novels from DC Universe Rebirth. One is all impulse, the other all anxiety. Together, they put the green in Green Lantern. Simon Baz and Jessica Cruz are the latest recruits to the Green Lantern Corps. They've proven themselves capable of overcoming great fear alongside the Corps and the Justice League alike. Now, Hal Jordan himself has assigned them the task of protecting the planet, but they're still new to the job with very little experience and a whole lot to prove. That makes them the perfect targets. One of the Green Lantern's greatest enemies has returned, and he has the Earth in his sights. He is Atrocitus, the tyrannical leader of the Red Lanterns, and he means to infect the entire planet with his murderous red rage. Can Jessica and Simon overcome their differences and wield the Green Lanterns like, like true partners? Or will these rookies' rage help the Red Lanterns extinguish that light for good? So this has a lot of things that I like about it. Uh, I love the concept of the Red Lanterns. Really, I mean, the entire emotional spectrum. But I've always been a fan of the Red Lanterns. Um, they just, I find them really fascinating. And equally fascinating, I find, are the two leads of this book, Simon Baz and Jessica Cruz. I think they're fantastic uh, choices for the Green Lantern Corps. Uh, Simon Baz, even though he's kind of fallen by the wayside recently in uh, recent years, uh, is, a, is a really, really great character. This book puts a big spotlight on him, and just as much on Jessica Cruz, who has skyrocketed in popularity since her debut. And the two of them work really well together. As the synopsis states, Simon Baz is super impulsive. Um, he is, you know, jump first, ask questions later, and Jessica Cruz has panic attacks. She questions everything that she does. And so the two really balance each other out well, especially when they're forced to go up against Atrocitus, who is just such a badass. Uh, the book has a lot of fun. It's great flavor. Um, it's written by Sam Humphreys, who does a really, really good job at giving these characters all their different voices. And the art by Robeson Roca is really, really good. I'm a big fan of the uh, delineation and the separation between the two, kind of highlighting how different they are and why they work together well. And this really is kind of, I think, the best modern interpretation of the Green Lantern Corps, kind of showing it to us as a reader 
through their eyes. It's a great, great book, and I am still sad that they ended up canceling it because the two leads here really do amazing work. Now, the next book is uh, it's near and dear to my heart. I have loved this book for a very long time, and I'm so glad that I get to talk about it. Uh, it's Omega Men. Omega Men, written by Tom King with art by Barnaby Begenda. Um, it's probably my favorite Green Lantern book of all time. Uh, I don't know if that, I don't know what that says about me as a Green Lantern fan, but um, I just love this book to death. It's really, really great. So I guess we'll go ahead and uh, dive into the synopsis here. Kyle Rayner, the White Lantern, is dead. And the Omega Men killed him on live TV. They're a criminal gang, a terrorist organization, and a fanatical cult. And they're the only hope for freedom this godforsaken sector of the universe has. No matter what the citizens of the Vega system think they saw, the White Lantern lives as the Omega Men's prisoner. What they really want him to be is their latest recruit in their relentless war against the all-powerful Citadel and its tyrannical Viceroy. As Kyle gets to know this motley crew of outlaws, he'll question everything he knows about being a hero. In this strange system where the Green Lanterns are forbidden, will he break his oath and join their revolution? Or will he discover that the Omega Men are monsters in the end? Now, this was one of the first Tom King books that I ever read, and um, I've been a huge fan of his uh, pretty much since then. Uh, this book is thought-provoking, it's wonderful, it takes a character that I love, near and dear, that's near and dear to my heart, that I love with all of my being, and really puts him through the ringer here. Uh, he is forced into this uh, life of terrorism and you really get to see how complicated war can be you know neither there really is no good and evil in that kind of conflict and in this kind of conflict uh there really aren't any good guys there are people who we see as the protagonists of the story but that doesn't necessarily make them good people and the way that this story and this conflict um evolves and shapes Kyle as a person and as a lantern is really, really great. He also be gets one of my favorite designs that he's ever had, the Omega Lantern. Um, and it's a design that I've been wanting to cosplay for many, many years. So um, it's just a fantastic book. I honestly think it's just as thought-provoking in a modern-day sense as Watchmen was back when it came out. Because the themes here, the themes of war, of terrorism, of perspective, are really prevalent and really well utilized here. The art is also stellar. It's really, really fantastic. I'm a huge fan of Barnaby Begenda, and I wish that he was getting more um, mainstream titles because he absolutely deserves it uh, especially for all the amazing work that he does in this book but it's just oh it's so good I love it so much um, but it's not the number one book on this list tonight and it um, it you know it, it hurts my heart a little but I really want the number one book to be not just a great story but a great entry point into the Green Lantern mythos. And there's only one book that I think really accomplishes that well and updates it for not just a modern audience, but really for what the genre of science fiction has grown and evolved into. And that is Green Lantern Earth 
1. Uh, Green Lantern Earth 1, Volume 1, uh, written by Gabriel Hardman with art by Karina Becco, um, is probably one of the best, if not the best, modern Green Lantern stories. It's such a great reimagining of the origin of Hal Jordan that, um, you know, let's just dive into the synopsis and then I can gush about the book a little bit more. Hal Jordan yearns for the thrill of discovery, but the days when astronaut and adventure were synonymous are long gone. His gig prospecting asteroids for Ferris Galactic is less than fulfilling, but at least he's not on Earth where technology and culture have stagnated. When Jordan finds a powerful ring, he also finds a destiny to live up to. There are worlds beyond his own, unlike anything he ever imagined. But revelation comes with a price. The Green Lantern Corps has fallen, wiped out by ruthless killing machines known as Manhunters. The odds against reinstating the Corps are nearly impossible, but doing the impossible is exactly what Hal Jordan was trained to do. This is probably the most cinematic that... Um, that an origin story for Hal Jordan can be. Um, and I say that full well acknowledging that we had a cinematic origin for Hal Jordan, and it was trash. Um, it's not, you know, the worst movie ever, uh, as many people would like to claim, but this is really how I could see um, a Green Lantern film being done or, you know, even the Green Lantern HBO Max series. If they took a look, you know, any kind of um, inspiration from this, they would be way, you know, they would have a head start because it's just a fantastic story. It's part of the Earth One line, which is essentially DC's ultimate universe, where they're basically taking the characters and giving them updated modern origins. And this one surprised the hell out of me. I didn't really know what to expect when the book when the book first came out but i remember reading it you know picking it up for the first time i was very late to the game and i read it all in one sitting i couldn't put it down it was so good just the reimagining of the green lantern core the reimagining of hal jordan uh the reimagining of the manhunters really put in front and center the manhunters which don't get enough play and don't get enough love as uh green lantern villains it's just a great story that really gets to the heart of who Hal Jordan is and what it means to be a Green Lantern. Kilowog is also a big presence in this book. I love me some Kilowog, and though um, a lot happens and not all of it uh, positive, it's just a fantastic story that's an emotional roller coaster from beginning to end. And Volume 2 is supposed to be dropping next month, unless, you know, the delays and... COVID has uh, pushed that back as well, which would break my heart. But uh, now's a better time than any to jump on, read this, get caught up, so that when Volume 2 comes out, which is promising the Sinestro Corps, um, you'll be all caught up and having read a fantastic Green Lantern origin story. So that is going to do it for this week's comics callback. To recap, we have our two-parter of Emerald Twilight and the Sinestro Corps War. We have Green Lanterns Volume 1 Rage Planet. We also have Omega Men, or I guess you could call it Omega Men, The End is Here. And finally, Green Lantern Earth 1 Volume 
one. I have been a big fan of the Green Lantern Corps for a very long time. Uh, Kyle Rayner was one of the first characters I ever read in comics that I was like, oh, that looks like me. And so um, the Green Lanterns kind of celebrating their 80-year anniversary is really exciting, and I can't wait to see where the Green Lanterns go in the next 80 years. And that is going to bring us to the final portion of our show, which is the wrap-up. Um, if you liked what you heard today on this episode, if this is your first time joining us on the podcast, feel free to subscribe to us on the podcasting platform of your choice. Also, give us a follow on the social medias, Instagram and Twitter, at Pod. That's at GeekSplainedPod. And if you would be so kind, feel free to give us a rating and review, especially on iTunes. It really helps us out, gets the word of our wonderful podcast out there and into the the orbit of listeners just like you. Plus, if you do give us a five-star rating and review, I will read your review live on the podcast. Uh, We have one up there so far. I would love to read more, so feel free to send in those reviews, and I will definitely, definitely read them. Um, Overall, I've been really, really enjoying anime so far. I hope you have been as well. Getting on uh, three of my favorite people in the world, three people who I look to for their anime expertise. It really is uh, great to finally talk about this stuff, especially with people who are so passionate about what we're talking about. As stated in the uh, main course of this week's episode, next week for our final episode, the big old finale for anime we're going to be doing a full-on roundtable discussion with all of the previous guests kanan john and dustin all talking about our personal top five anime of all time it is a fantastic conversation that i can't wait for you all to listen to it's great there's going to be some uh poking fun at each other there's going to be some rambling some raving and there will be uh plenty of anime for you to check out so uh look forward to that grand finale to anime next week same geek time same geek channel but for now for geek explain this is eric azana thank you very much for listening and we will see you next time
Segway, rock and roll.